Right, the ordinance of covenanting, we're up to week 43. We're in the Psalm League and Covenant. Psalm League and Covenant part uh, 6. The fourth term of communion, that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament, that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution, and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. So we're up to the fifth article. <clears throat> and um, we're going to be talking a lot about the end of, of it's contemplated <coughs> in covenant, uh, in, in uh, the idea of covenanting and uh, in covenant, in taking and and renewing of covenants, and that is uh, a big part of this is to establish peace. Right? There's peace between the parties in covenant, and so um, it shouldn't be too too uh, hard <coughs> to understand how that concept of peace is really at the center of the covenant of grace, whereby we have been brought into a state of reconciliation with God through Christ, and he has made peace where there was none before. <clears throat> so we're, we're going to be looking at uh, the fifth article, which has to do with the happiness of the kingdoms, the kingdoms are talking about, uh, in, in particular, England, Scotland, and Ireland. Uh, we will be looking more closely at that when we move into the idea of covenant renovation. And we're going to be talking about, uh, at some point here, descending obligations of these covenants. And um, so... When we talk about England, Scotland, and Ireland, <coughs> we um, are really talking about every nation and every country, every uh, kingdom that has at any time been in, in or a state of organic union of some sort or other with with Britain uh, since that time, those nations all have uh, that same covenant obligation. And this is going to be something we'll trace out in, in a bit more detail. But <clears throat> I'll say it now and I'll, I'll say it later when we talk about this proposition. Um, broadly speaking, this covenant obligation we're talking about is discernible and traceable broadly to what we would call the Anglosphere. Wherever English is either the primary language or a secondary official language of a nation, uh, it's probably that exactly because that nation or country has um, had some kind of, of organic connection in some way or other, either directly or indirectly. 
to these kingdoms that are in view. And so the peace that we're talking about is a peace which is um, to be pursued particularly between those nations and countries uh, in, in pursuit of the ends of this covenant. And from that point, um, it is, in fact, applicable and um, desirable uh, to other nations as well. So we're going to be looking at the blessing of kingdoms and nations to be at peace. <clears throat> and then we're going to be looking at the concern of governments. <clears throat> and while we'll be talking primarily about civil government, um, toward the end you're going to see that we can't really ever talk about civil government without also contemplating to some degree uh, familial government and ecclesiastical government. Uh, we will be talking about bequeathing the, the peace of, of covenant keeping uh, to subsequent generations. And so we'll, we are going to talk a little bit about this idea of, of posterity. Um, we're not going to be spending a lot of time on it uh, this time, but it's certainly a topic that we need to begin to address. <coughs> and then we're going to come back and, and sort of circle around to uh, what do we do with those who are opponents? Uh, what, how should we deal with people who are set in opposition to this kind of covenant uniformity? So we, we need to have uh, a sense of, of what is, is in view with regard to the peace that we're seeking and what is in view with regard to <clears throat> the um, uh, the prospect of, of maintaining that covenant in the face of people who, for whatever reason, uh, show themselves to be willful opposers. How should we approach that kind of resistance? Right, and and uh, the, the peace of a society, we're going to see, <coughs> is a very broad construct. It takes in a lot of things. And so we'll, we're going to be looking at it primarily with an eye to the, uh, to the um, notion of justice, because in, in the civil realm, uh, the primary concern in civil society is to have ordered freedom. And ordered freedom is uh, something which can only be had when there is genuine justice, right? when all of the things the components of the society are given their, their just um, exercise of freedom without infringing on the freedom of, of others. Uh, and so that's when, when that occurs at a maximal level, you have maximal societal peace. <coughs> and that 
flows from a, really a covenanted uniformity uh, in religion. So we'll we'll look at that. All right. Let me read the fifth article. Article five of the Solemn League and Covenant. And whereas the happiness of a blessed peace between these kingdoms, denied in former times to our progenitors, is by the good providence of God granted unto us, and hath been lately concluded and settled by both parliaments, we shall each one of us, according to our place and interest, endeavor that we may remain conjoined in a firm peace and union to all posterity. And justice may be done upon the willful opposers thereof in a manner expressed in the preceding article. <coughs> so we can see that uh, we're going to be circling around again to that question of what do we do with covenant opposers, right? Uh, which is where most criticism against the, uh, the Solemn League <coughs> has been leveled at this idea of... Um, seeing that justice would be done on, on willful opposers of that covenanted uniformity. <coughs> All right, question one. <coughs> Is it a great blessing for diverse kingdoms and nations to be at peace? This shouldn't be too hard to conceive, but um, the, answer, the answer is yes. We're going to look at uh, Isaiah 2, 4. Isaiah 2, verse 4. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So <coughs> we're going to come back in a, in a couple of minutes and look at uh, the broader context of these verses, but or this verse. Uh, but um, peace is, in fact, one of the great ends, if not the greatest end, for which all nations exist. Peace is something which is desirable for the native populations of these nations. <coughs> Peace is <coughs> desirable for <coughs> not only um, nations which are in close proximity to one another, but even their neighboring nations have uh, they, they have an interest in the peace of their neighbors. They generally, um, when you have two powers or two nations in conflict, uh, usually it doesn't stop there. Other nations tend to get drawn into that. And so peace is something which is a great blessing. <laughs> and to the extent that it is, um, it, it's found among <coughs> any nations, right? Between any nations, it's a blessing. When that 
piece is extended beyond uh, just a couple of nations, it it actually um, is of, of such a, a character that it it um, expands the blessing as far, literally as far as it's being maintained among nations and their neighbors. So, peace, being the fruit of kingdoms and nations, establishing the true religion and liberties of the subjects, uh, which is something we've already talked about a bit in the Psalm League, constitutes a crowning blessing upon such as achieve it. Look at Jeremiah 34, 4-8. Jeremiah 34, verses 4-8. through 8. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus saith the Lord of thee, Thou shalt not die by the sword, but thou shalt die in peace, and with the burnings of thy father, the former kings which were before thee. So shall they burn odors for thee, and they will lament thee, saying, Ah, Lord, for I pronounce the word, saith the Lord. Then Jeremiah the prophet spake all these things unto Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem. When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah, that were left against Lachish and against Azekah, for these defense cities remained of the cities of Judah. This is the word that came unto Jeremiah from the Lord. After that, the king Zedekiah made a covenant with all the people which were at Jerusalem to proclaim, to pro- proclaim liberty unto them. So con- consider for a moment, <coughs> uh, prior to the New Testament era, Israel is the only nation that has a true religion. Israel is the only nation that has a proper view of the true liberties of the subjects, which is why, parenthetically, why the Mosaic polity is, in fact, um, something worthy of study by Gentile nations. Because it does give, in terms of general equity principles, it does give us a good, a good um, uh, point of reference, so that there is <coughs> maximum liberty, <coughs> civil liberty, uh, without transgressing in ways that actually affect. Uh, the freedom of all of the subjects of the country or nation. So the um, the fruit of, of Israel establishing true religion and, and true liberty is peace. Right. The only time Israel loses peace is when they lose peace with God. And then they end up in trouble. So, as long as they are in proper submission um, and not violating the moral law with respect to God or man, then they have peace. When they proceed upon a course where they're violating the divine law with respect to God or man or both, then uh, generally there is uh, 
there's temporal hell to pay. And, and temporal hell is war, right? There's war is the natural state of the fallen man. And so to the extent that uh, he is restrained by the moral law, he is in fact able to hold back the, um, the temporal hell that is war. Okay. Peace is a state of, of um, the absence of conflict. In the absence, when, when there's true religion and true liberty, there's no reason or ground for conflict. So when the Lord is pleased to bless his people, to dwell in safety, <clears throat> there is always an accompanying peace. It's Psalm 4 8. Psalm 4 verse 8. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. <coughs> yeah, the Lord makes his people to dwell in safety and peace. Um, this is this is the uh, blessing that attends <coughs> at a, a, a people that are obedient uh, to both tables of the law, right? The duties to God and duties to man. You know, it's not enough that you say, well, I'm going to keep uh, commandments 5 through 10, but I'm not going to keep commandments 1 to 4. <clears throat> there are a lot of people even in churches today who think that all the civil magistrate needs to enforce is commandments you know five or maybe even they might even move off of that honor thy father, father and mother uh, to, to six right thou shalt not kill uh, but they, they just look at the second table as an object of their purview uh, the reformers and, and certainly um the prophets of God understood that the magistrate is responsible to uphold both tables of the law. And that uh, that's simply the, um, uh, the extension of that responsibility that really falls to everyone. So when there is that kind of, of uh, civil obedience, civil uh, conformity <coughs> then God makes his people dwell in safety and there's peace conversely it's a false and conniving peace that the wicked promise unto themselves Look at 2 Samuel 17 3 2 Samuel 17 verse 3 and I will bring back all the people unto thee the man whom thou seekest as it is as if all returned so all the people shall be in peace Yeah, that, that was really the promise of the false and conniving peace, right? A, a peace, what, what mankind, fallen men want, is they want peace without God, peace without obedience to the moral law, uh, peace with, with decadence and, and uh, an allowance for every kind of wickedness. It's really a conniving at peace. It's, it's a false peace. Um, that that's being promised, right? There's 
There is a silence of the grave. <coughs> and so, <coughs> what they're doing is they're, they're seeking peace um, through wicked promises. And the end of all of that is war, right? destruction, uh, anything but peace or safety. And we see that in the treaties that, that so often uh, men enter into where there, there's no consideration. There's no, certainly no fear of God and there's not even a regard for <clears throat> moral duties to one another. And so, um, you know, 20 years after the Declaration of Peace at Versailles uh, for World War One, we have World War Two begin uh, because it's it's it was a false peace. It was promised on on humanistic grounds, <clears throat> but they were <clears throat> they were grounds that uh, were staked out apart from the true God apart from the true religion, apart from true liberties, which should have been guaranteed for all of the subjects. But the fact is, there's no peace for the wicked, but only the curse of God. In Isaiah 48.22 and John 3.36. Isaiah 48.22 There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. John 3, verse 36 he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Yeah, so, interestingly enough, <clears throat> uh, 20 verses after uh, probably the most popular and most quoted verse from the Bible, John 3.16, uh, is this assurance that uh, if you don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God abides on you. In other words, you're in a state of wrath and enmity with God. And uh, so you can't expect there to be peace because the Bible says there's no peace for the wicked. <coughs> the wicked have not peace. And they can't have peace because they're striving with their maker. They're constantly arguing with God. They're not in submission to God's rule and reign. You know, they, they, they argue about everything. Everything is an imposition from their point of view. They refuse to submit to the order that God is imposing on them. And um, so there, there's not going to be a lasting peace where there isn't a lasting regard for true religion and the true liberties of man. Uh, James McKinney, who was um, <clears throat> one of the uh, Reformed Presbyterian uh, fathers in the United, the United States, uh, when he, he came over from Ireland, he had been uh, caught in the crossfire <coughs> between the papists <coughs> and the deists. And uh, he preached a series of sermons called The Rights of God and Man. 
where he asserts against the deists the rights of God um, and against the papists the rights of man. Uh, and we, he, only two of the sermons survived, but I'm sure that the other four of the six were were of, of interest because the two that have survived are are actually quite um, interesting and enlightening with regard to this. Uh, what he is really saying is, without a proper regard for both tables of the law, you can't have peace. The idea that we can have peace uh, as, as the uh, humanists and, and, and I guess now the transhumanists, uh, their idea that we can have peace without God, without a regard for the first table of the law, uh, that's a pipe dream. We have to have regard, first of all, for the rights of God and the idea that we can have uh, peace without... A, a regard, a proper regard for the true liberties of, of, of men as Romanism uh, trampled the rights of men during the Middle Ages in Europe. Uh, that too is uh, contrary to the doctrine which alone brings true peace and that is when we have a submission to God uh, and our, I should say our duties to God and our duties to man all in submission to God because God is the one who commanded this <coughs> so what they're doing <coughs> in this article of the, the Solemn League what they're doing is they're anticipating the millennium right? peace is the promise which belongs to those nations which submit themselves to the reign of Christ and it will be the hallmark feature of the millennium. So we're going to look again at Isaiah 2-4 but this time in context. I want to look at verses 2-5. through five. Isaiah 2-5. Isaiah 2 verses 2-5 And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say Come ye, let us go up to, to, to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and they shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war, learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So Isaiah, really, when he talks about this, he's talking about uh, that period that we would call the millennium, when the nations are no longer in a state of rebellion, they're no longer being deceived by the devil, uh, but they are, in fact, covenanting and in covenant with the true God. What is going on then in this article is this anticipation. They're anticipating. And I, I think I pointed out <clears throat> there was there was a bit of speculation <clears throat> that perhaps they were reaching the end of 
uh, the apostasy at that time, that maybe uh, they were about to turn the corner, maybe this covenant between England, Scotland, and Ireland uh, would be taken up by Holland, and then after Holland, maybe some of the other Protestant countries, and, and that that might even lead to worldwide uh, submission of the nations to Christ. So there was some of that kind of thinking, and um, you see it, at least in part, in, uh, there's a, a sermon I think I've referenced that George Gillespie preached at the time of the Westminster Assembly uh, before either the House of Lords or the House of Commons, uh, dealing with a passage from Ezekiel where he more than a little hints at this idea. So we know that they were, at least some of the Westminster divines, uh, which would mean some of the Puritans who are taking this covenant, are thinking this is possible. Again, whatever is promised to occur during the millennium, <coughs> um, if we look at a description of the millennial church, that's already, in a sense, prescriptive for the church at any point anyway. All right, we should be endeavoring uh, to achieve that anyway. So what they're doing, whether they thought that it was going to happen then or was yet sometime in the more distant future, what they're doing with this covenant is uh, imagining the church and nation as it should be, and by covenant they're trying to approach that should, what it should be. Right? They're, they're, not, um, they're not asking what is, they're asking what it should be. <coughs> and by doing that, they actually achieved a lot of reform. It was only for a time because the time obviously was not yet, but uh, nonetheless, they've, uh, because they acted in this fashion, they, they did a lot to give us insight, understanding, and direction as we look forward to that time. Now, <clears throat> if peace is such a, a great blessing, for the diverse kingdoms and nations. Uh, question two, should it be a concern of governments to establish peace? And the answer is yes. We're going to begin looking at Jeremiah 29, 7. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. And seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall you have peace. So when... God is uh, remanding Israel to captivity. He tells them, you know, seek the peace. <coughs> seek the peace of the, uh, the, the capturing nation, right, or empire. Why? Because in the peace of your, your conquerors, even in, in this situation, you're going to have peace. Right? So that tells us 
if we if we argue from an extreme case, right, by by the way, uh, this is the only time that I'm aware of in the Bible where God actually tells them to sit down and shut up in in a case of captivity. Uh, usually they're not un, they're not bound to this, and um, uh, this is a different situation uh, and a unique one. Now, normally. They're not bounded in that way, but God tells them in this particular instance <clears throat> not to rebel against what might be tyranny, uh, and that that tells us that that's not a general duty; it was a particular and peculiar duty. But what we can derive from it here is this: that the object of civil government actually is peace. Because God isn't commanding them to pray for something unlawful or ungodly or immoral with respect to this situation, nor is he praying for them to remain in some sort of um, state of turmoil as a result of being placed in this captivity. He's telling them to pray for peace. Uh, because it's a civil duty of all men, especially those professing the true religion, to seek peace with others as far as the interest of truth and true religion permit. So look at Romans 12.18. Romans 12.18, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. So, it's a foundational duty civil duty <clears throat> of all men especially believers uh, to try to remain at peace now it's not again that's not um, something which we're told is the only thing that we should seek right in other words we're not uh, generally, we're not to seek peace at the expense of truth, uh, but we should be seeking peace in the truth, or as far as it's consistent with the truth. Uh, why? Because no matter what situation we find ourselves in, in that peace, we will find peace. <clears throat> uh, it's not to say that they will find peace, the unbelievers. <clears throat> because there's no peace for them. Right? But it is possible to find some peace even in that kind of situation. Now the king or chief magistrate being the civil head of the body politic and I want to look at Deuteronomy one thirteen. Deuteronomy 1 verse 13 Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. Yeah, I will make them rulers over your... As the Hebrew literally says, I will appoint them as your heads. Right? They're civil heads of the body politic. And, and it's necessary then that such a man be, um, be a, a person who's inclined toward peace. And... Just for confirmation, look at 2 Kings 22 20. 2 Kings 22, verse 20. <clears throat> Behold, therefore, 
I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into thy grave in peace. And thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought the king word again. Yeah, generally speaking, in the Bible, <coughs> the, um, the people who are heading up empires are, they're like ravenous beasts. Right? They're, they're not... Um, they're not men of peace. Uh, they are people who are seeking war. Uh, they're interested in conquest, but the Bible uh, favors nations over empire. And uh, in, in that context, you know, nations require that they're being led by men who are men inclined to peace. Right? They're not looking to pick a fight. They're not looking to um, provoke hostility unnecessarily. Uh, they are interested in justice, but you know, justice um, justice has to be administered in such a manner as it is conducive to peace as much as possible as well. Right? As much as possible, <clears throat> we have to live at peace with all men. <clears throat> Sometimes there are injustices between nations and, you know, war is necessary. We do have a just war theory in Christianity. But Generally, we should view war as a last, uh, really a last point. Right? When we've exhausted every other avenue, it's the last avenue of redress in a matter of justice to an entire nation. Uh, generally, we should not be the aggressors or uh, in any way trying to provoke that. And so, as heads, civil heads of the body politic, we want people inclined toward peace. Right? Because people who are inclined toward peace <clears throat> are going to seek peace not only within or, or between the nations, but usually within the nation as well. It's by their providence that justice is established and evil is scattered. Look at Proverbs uh, 20 verse 8. Proverbs 20, verse 8. A king that sitteth, a king that sitteth in the throne of judgment scattereth away all evil with his eyes. Yeah, it's done in such a way that the people may dwell in peace and safety. Look at Acts 24, 2. Acts 24, verse 2. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. <coughs> the idea that the king, <coughs> by his eye, is scattering the wicked or dispelling wickedness <coughs> is exactly the same as what Paul's talking about <coughs> when he talks about the providence of the king. 
But what is providence? It's it's uh, the doctrine of God's overseeing of the creation, right? And that the king exercises an analogous providence in the civil realm toward the civil body, and when he is keen to establish justice and scatter evil the people are able to dwell in peace and safety. And so the only way he's going to do that is if he is a man who's interested in peace. Now in a civil sense peace is the proper end of justice. And there was a time when people were marching for civil rights <coughs> in this country, and one of the chants was uh, to the effect that there will be no peace without justice. Without getting into the merits, the particular merits of the people who were chanting that, uh, the fact is that that statement is actually true. We, the problem is we need to define justice in terms of what God has said <clears throat> and not what men in their sinful passions want. <clears throat> but justice, the administration of justice, inevitably does lead to peace because the establishment of justice is something which every human being knows deep down inside is justice when it is in fact meted out. That's why there are uh, cases, you know, where <coughs> you have somebody um, engaged in some sort of extreme violent behavior and, and uh, <clears throat> let's say the police uh, you know, move in and, and just shoot the person, very seldom is there a huge outcry, even from the more extreme elements left or right in the country. There's, there's usually not a huge outcry. There may be some cranks here and there trying to stir things up uh, that, that will you know, gravitate toward that, but most people in that situation... Uh, they can perceive that there was actually some just uh, administration of justice in that event, right? And, and we have examples of this uh, in a number of different ways. <clears throat> um, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, you know, people in this country uh, immediately... Uh, and this is without getting into, you know, all of the the uh, back channels and manipulations behind everything that went on. But the popular perception, uh, this is the kind of thing that elicits a sense of justice. Now, you know, yes, can we manipulate the, the uh, sentiments of mass populations? Yes, we can, and they do that. That's not that's not justice, but people do 
have an innate sense of justice as long as you don't manipulate it, right? So you see something like that and you say, well, that now, <clears throat> we weren't the provocateurs, at least that's what people in this country thought at the time, we weren't the provocateurs and therefore uh, it's a just cause to go to war. Um, It's necessary <coughs> to have men of peace administering civil governments because if you don't, they are going to manipulate that natural sense that people have um, to, to pervert judgment and justice. But when there is someone, a good king, right, they're going to scatter. Uh, evil, and they're going to establish justice. And it's one thing, really. Likewise, we understand the peace of the Lord's people is bound up with the peace of those governments under which they find themselves. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1-4. through 4. I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. So, <clears throat> the peace of the people of God is to some extent bound up with peace of the uh, various civil governments under which they... The, find themselves arrayed at any point in history. So we should, to that extent, again, as far as is consistent with the principles of true religion and the interests of true liberty, uh, we should be seeking peace in our societies. Uh, again, magistrates establish peace through an enforcement of justice without which the rulers themselves become the objects of scorn. Proverbs 24, 23, and 24. Proverbs 24, <coughs> verses 23, 24. These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have respect of persons in judgment. He that saith unto the wicked, Thou art righteous, him shall the people curse, nations shall abhor him. It's the chief, chief duty of the civil magistrate to establish justice. When justice has respect to persons rather than principles, what they manage to establish is injustice. Right? There's a reason why throughout Israel... And I think we looked at this last time. God command uh, commands that there be one law for the people who were natural born and for the stranger. <coughs> right? The stranger was on the one hand constrained by the same rules 
as the society through which he he or she were, were, was uh, uh, journeying, that pilgrimage of theirs. <clears throat> On the other hand, they were admitted to the same um, to to a practice of the same liberties, natural liberties, I should say. <coughs> that were afforded to everyone else in that society. Now, I, I say natural liberties because there were things that they couldn't do. They couldn't own property. They couldn't. Uh, they didn't have um, a, a stake in, in certain uh, certain things that were peculiar to people who were actually the citizens of Israel. Right? They, there were things they couldn't do. They wanted to become a citizen of Israel. One of the first things they had to do is become circumcised, adopt the, the religion, the true religion, and and then assimilate. All right? So there were things that they couldn't do that were peculiar um, privileges. But as far as natural liberties, right, the, the, the right to not have your... Uh, your property that you actually did possess taken from you unlawfully uh, or to be remunerated for labor or goods sold and so on. Uh, those kinds of things were protected. I mean, there wasn't one law for a Jew and another law for a Gentile. You know, the, the, the Jews weren't allowed to <clears throat> use a different scale, for example, in weighing out measures of, of commodities. Uh, they had to use the same scale for those who were Jews as those who were Gentiles. <coughs> and so um, the, the magistrate is responsible. Justice, in that respect, uh, means that you, you <coughs> need to respect all natural civil liberties okay which which are recognized within the nation now they're you know they had certain laws they, they had laws against blasphemy <clears throat> and they didn't just apply to the Jews you know if you came into Israel and you started blaspheming you were going to be put to death you know, if you went into the open square to proselytize for false religion, uh, you would be dealt with. You weren't simply allowed to go in and disregard the cultural, which were ultimately the cultural things are are the um, the civil outworkings of the the religion of the people. You couldn't go in and undermine that without consequence. But as long as you were willing to abide by it, uh, on the other hand, <clears throat> the kind of thing that was tolerated is uh, you were allowed to worship idols in your own home, you know, in your own dwelling. You couldn't take them into the public square, uh, but they weren't forcing you uh, to, to become a Jew. And in the public square, they were recognizing you had certain as we might call them in, in the United States, inalienable rights. 
problem is when you start to to conflate the two, uh, the, the inalienable uh, civil liberties which belong to all men and national privileges which pertain to people who are native born. Anyway, uh, enforcement of justice demands a proper estimate of what is good and what is not good. Proverbs 18.5. Proverbs 18 verse 5, it is not good to accept the person of the wicked to overthrow the righteous in judgment. <coughs> right, so it's not good when you allow person, particularly when the persons are wicked, uh, when you allow their personality, when you have a regard for person rather than principles of what is right and just, uh, that's not good. Enforcement of justice requires that you know what is good and that you enforce that, regardless of whether somebody in this case, uh, would, would have been a Jew or a Gentile. <coughs> and, and that's, in the, in the Solemn League, <coughs> that's what they're actually endeavoring to do. You know, if you're a Protestant Christian coming to England, Scotland, or Ireland, you're probably going to find yourself in a pretty good way, right? You're not going to be kicking against the pricks. You're not really going to be concerned so much about uh, national privilege because they're not going to be doing something that you're going to find so distasteful that you feel the need to disrupt it. right? Because culturally you have a lot in common even if you're not naturally born. So it was in Solomon's day characteristic of his kingdom it was both unified and at peace. In 1 Kings 4, 24-25. 1 Kings 4 verses 24 and 25. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tiphash even to Gaza, over all the kings of this side of the river. And he had peace on all sides round about him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Yes, yeah, so Solomon is, and I've said this on a number of occasions, Solomon is a picture of both Christ in his state of exaltation, but also the church uh, as it will be during that state that we call the millennium. Right? When there will be a universal um, universal application of these messianic principles in the earth. And so we see his kingdom is unified at peace. That's a result of this. When you have principles which are being pursued in accordance with God's law, God's moral commandment, you have the establishing of justice, you have the basis for it, <clears throat> and the, the actual establishment of it is what Solomon does, and it, it brings unity and peace. Is again, one thing about the moral law, though the wicked are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, when the moral law drops the hammer on someone, deep down inside, no matter how much they've been suppressing the truth, deep down inside, people know they deserve exactly what they're getting. Uh, we don't ever, in this life, we don't ever really get 
what we deserve, right? And you should be glad of that. What you deserve is always far worse than anything you ever get in this life, even if you're a pagan, right? But in the life to come, everything will be settled. And for unbelievers, they're going to get everything they deserve. And for believers, thankfully, we're going to get nothing uh, that we deserve because uh, that's what grace is, uh, taking away what we deserve and giving us what Christ deserves, right? So <clears throat> anyway, from a civil point of view, this, as the magistrates approach implementation of the moral law, They actually do more to establish unity and peace at a deeper level. If you don't believe it, look at what is happening in our society when we see them trying to legislate and, and they have regard to personalities, right? We're, we're trying to legislate for this minority group and that minority group and this minority group over here and that minority group. And, you know, we're, these are all attempts to legislate based on personalities <clears throat> rather than deep and abiding moral principles. And the more they do it, the more fragmented society becomes. Right? So the, the sooner they stop doing that, the sooner we'll actually begin to see uh, a, a reunifying and, and peace. Uh, people who think that, you know, the imposition of Christianity would be the worst thing in the world uh, for this country or for any other country. Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. Right? The implementation of Christianity would establish a stable, objective, moral order. And that would eventually, in not too short a time, it would bring about unity and peace for the whole of society including all the people right now who are confused and don't know which bathroom to use. All right, question three. <clears throat> Ought we to endeavor the keeping of such peace unto all posterity? The answer is yes. Psalm 122, 6 through 8. Psalm 122, verses 6 through 8. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. For my brethren and companions' sake, I will now say, Peace be within thee. Peace, peace, peace. What is he praying for? Peace, peace to himself and peace to posterity. Right? That's the best way to endeavor to keep peace unto all posterity. <coughs> to see that the law of God is being kept. Right? And, and, and in order to do that, People need to have faith. That for which we ought to pray then, we ought also to endeavor to keep. Ephesians 4, three. Ephesians 4, verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Yeah, so... Um, we should be endeavoring... <clears throat> For peace, which means in the civil realm we should be endeavoring for justice, which means we should be endeavoring to see the moral law uh, in both tables, duties 
to God and duties to man. All ten commandments that uh, that are that are a summary of the moral law that that all in toto is being um, enforced, and we should endeavor ourselves to keep that. <coughs> right? It, it's it is in a sense untoward for us to be pressing for peace when we're what we're doing is contrary to that. We should be endeavoring after that, and that means we should be endeavoring to be rent to render a proper obedience to the faith. Additionally, if it is the duty of good men to leave behind an inheritance for their children, look at Proverbs 13.22. Proverbs 13, verse 22, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Uh, which they yet maintain is theirs to give or withhold by title. Matthew 7, 9 to 11. Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? And how much more are they obliged to keep such a peace unto posterity which they possess not as property, but by right? We're going to look at Psalm 48, uh, 11 through 14 here. Psalm 48, verses 11 through 14. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces, that ye might tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. So, what we have in the way of goods, that is property. What we have in the way of peace, that's more than property. That's something that that, uh, believers have by right. And we we have a right to peace. If we're supposed to maintain our property in such a way that we might leave an inheritance to our children, how much more, you know, this idea of of peace, that we ought to be uh, leaving peace, that there might be peace to our children. Thus, fathers, fathers may dispose of the inheritance of their children because that inheritance uh, belongs to the father as well as to the son. Genesis 31.14, Joshua 14.13. Genesis 31, verse 14. And Rachel and Leah answered and said unto him, Is there yet any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Joshua 14, verse 13. And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Hebron, for an inheritance. Yeah, so the father has a right to dispose of property as well as to uh, to give it to his son. Because he has a right in that property. He has a prior right. 
Right? There's there's a reason why uh, there is there's a descending uh, this idea of a descent descent of property. Right? The first right of property is in the father, and then in the son. Uh, when it comes to property, the father has a first right of disposal. Father has a first right uh, as far as disposing, you know, who will inherit and who, and who will not to some degree. Now, there are biblical <coughs> parameters there as well. But what he doesn't have the right to do is he has no more power to resign the liberties of his children than their lives. Look at Deuteronomy 21 18 through 21. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of his city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard and all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die, so shall thou put away evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Yeah, so, <clears throat> while parents, particularly fathers, have, have a prior right in property, when it comes to matters of, of liberty, natural civil liberties, um, just like life itself, they don't have authority over that. What the magistrate uh, does in in criminal cases, uh, but it, it does not pertain to the father uh, to to exercise himself in in that way, right? As far as restraining or detracting from a natural liberty, he can remove privileges uh, privileges which pertain to the family, privileges which pertain to uh, inheritance. But he can't take away either civil rights or life. Doesn't have that authority. And and if he doesn't have that authority, the argument here is this: How much more is he responsible, the father, to see that the the son is uh, is put in a possession of those natural civil liberties, if you will, um, that he possessed, right? That they're not restricted in the next generation. In other words, that there is peace being transmitted. There's actual justice, right? A, a, a prior generation does not have the right to restrict or tie the hands of subsequent generations in matters of natural liberty. <clears throat> Nor do they have the right to, do, to commit them to something uh, that would you know, destroy their lives. Right, so th this is exactly why you need to have just and righteous people, you know, men who are ruling over all things. Because 
if the people who are ruling are not just and right uh, in themselves, they're not going to be concerned that there is a transmission of these liberties. They're not, and they're certainly not going to be concerned about true religion. Of course, you know, when there's no concern for true religion, you can always guarantee that concern and regard for true civil liberties uh, will not will not be upheld very long. Okay? It, it just can't happen. It won't happen. Because when people don't fear God, uh, they very seldom will fear doing right to their fellow man. Okay? It's, just, it's just part of fallen human nature. <clears throat> so, one of the most effective ways of endeavoring that this peace be maintained is instructing the posterity in the ways of the Lord. Look at Isaiah 54.13. Isaiah 54, verse 13. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Yeah, peace is transmitted, <coughs> first of all, through knowledge of true religion. Remember, cultures, cultures arise from the religion of the people. But if you have cultures which are clashing with natural morality, you're not going to be able to establish justice. And if a civil magistrate can't establish justice, it's impossible to maintain peace. You can't have peace without justice. And you can't have justice. A society won't stand for the imposition of the moral law of God if the culture which is shaped by their religion, won't bear it. And so a culture that is cast off the restraint of the first table of, of the moral law, their duty to God, will not for, for long <clears throat> bear the burden of that second table of the law, their duty to man. <clears throat> so the best way for, to, to uh, see that there will be peace in succeeding generations is to make sure that posterity is instructed in the principles of true religion. As we noted before, uh, this entails a careful instruction in these covenants and to cause the children to make conscience thereof. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Yeah, so um, I, I said we're going to start touching on this issue of descending obligations of covenants. The fact that the Bible is again and again telling us, and uh, is actually quite adamant about this point of instructing children and that children would obey uh, that that principle of instruction and obedience to that instruction is a principle which is pointing to a descending obligation uh, there's a general descending obligation to the true religion covenanting is simply the voluntary assumption of that descending obligation. So the descending obligation of covenants 
in one respect is just the same as saying that there's a descending recognition in subsequent generations that they bear the same responsibility toward the moral law as did their forefathers. Without such diligent instruction of our children and good examples given by us to them, God may justly plague us and let them forget and fall from this covenant and the judgments of God will fall on the posterity as on Israel for King Saul's breaking of the oath to the Gibeonites. It's 2 Samuel 21, 1. 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Yeah, so it's for Saul and for his bloody house. Why? Because what he did to the Gibeonites. What? Who cares what he did to the Gibeonites, right? Why should that matter? Well, it turns out that although everyone had forgotten, some 400 years before, Joshua had sworn an oath. He'd entered into a covenant with the Gibeonites. And Saul broke that some 400 years later. And not during the reign of Saul, but during the reign of David, God plagues him for that breach of covenant. Which in and of itself was immersed because under David, they actually inquired why God was so angry. Right? There, there was, in fact, a remedy. And, and they were given an opportunity as a society um, to, to right that wrong, to renew covenant, <clears throat> to own that obligation. Alright, so... Um, people say, well, you know, what we're talking about here with the Solemn League. That was 1643. Who in, the, who in their right mind nowadays remembers that? 1643. Not even 400 years, actually. Right? So, uh, it's, it's been broken, uh, violated for some time, and the Anglosphere is continually being whipped over this. Right? The English-speaking nations are continually uh, getting, uh, being subjected to various chastisements. Uh, and I suspect it will continue until Zion's set time of deliverance will come when the, um, the national attitudes of the English-speaking peoples will will turn on this point, but uh, it's necessary that the knowledge of this be transmitted from generation to generation. I mean, somebody, when David inquires, why are we getting hit from God in this way, uh, when David finally makes this inquiry, someone has the presence of mind to say, hey, it's what Saul did. And what Saul did was break uh, that covenant which had been made 400 years before. You, know, you may think it's a little thing, but it, it actually, when we read the account, um, it brings a lot of, of um, 
catastrophe, moral catastrophe, uh, to, or I should say it's, it is a moral catastrophe, and it brings other catastrophe to Israel at that time. So <clears throat> the way that we get around that, uh, or, or the way that we um, make sure we don't become part of the provoking cause of divine wrath is diligent instruction and diligent regard to the principles that are being held here. We should be endeavoring uh, in our place and station. When we get to question five again, uh, we should be endeavoring uh, wherever we are in life to see that these principles are being Transmitted that they're being made known, that they're being unfolded, that they're being enacted. Uh, however limited our scope of, of authority, however limited the place wherein we are able to make that a reality. So, fathers have no right to resign the natural liberties of children any more than their lives, nor do they have the right <coughs> to um, to cast off covenant obligations that have been lawfully contracted. And this is something that uh, we recognize, I think, inherently when we talk about Nations, right? We enter into treaties. One generation will enter into a treaty, and it will be kept for several generations. Why? Because we recognize that when it comes to principles of right versus wrong, when it comes to doing what is, in fact, in the interest of peace and genuine civil liberty. Uh, we recognize that, that our, our fathers, our forefathers, have a right to bind us to a course of action. And we don't have a right to unbind ourselves from that. Right? We, we, don't, we never have a right to go back uh, when there's been a lawful contracting of a course of action. Right? If there's been a, a contracting to do something wrong, we have an obligation to undo that. There's no obligation to keep um, something that is morally wrong. <clears throat> but if it's something indifferent, or particularly with something moral, we're we're bound. <clears throat> and if we don't do it, well, you can read a little bit more about that in Second Samuel 21. Question four. Back to this question. Should we seek that, just, that justice be done to those who are willful opposers of such a covenanted unity? The answer is yes. Look at Ezra 7, 25, and 26. Ezra 7, verses 25 and 26. And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God, that is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges, which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know them not. Whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death or to banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment. Yeah, so willful opposers 
ought they to be opposed themselves? And the answer is yes. Right? People who know the truth and resist, people who are aware and seek to undermine, these people are enemies of the true religion, they're enemies of the true peace of the society. This idea that what you believe uh, has no impact, no bearing on society, uh, the society in which you live is, is simply wrong. The execution of justice is a matter of great rejoicing for a righteous people, uh, but the slackness in punishing evildoers harms the morale of God's people. Okay. Proverbs 29, 2. Proverbs 29, verse 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Yeah, there, there's a rejoicing. Why is a rejoicing? Well, again, um, what is the effect of the establishing of justice? Peace. You, you instill unity in society. When, when we're smashed over the barrel of personalities, right, personal opinion, rather than moral principle, When we're smashed by that, societies are going to be fragmented, necessarily. Right? The moral law of God <clears throat> is con-created in man. God creates man. He creates him in such a, a manner that he is immediately in tune with that moral law which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, I've said this before. What that means is all men by nature know that there is a God. Right? They don't know by nature who the God is. And you need special revelation for that now, particularly with the fall. <clears throat> that question has been confused. All men know that that God ought to be worshipped as he commands. <clears throat> How that is, again, they need special revelation. Uh, it's no longer as apparent as it might have been in a world without sin. All men know by nature that they ought to reverence the true God. But again, they don't know who that God is or exactly how to do that. And they know that they have to set aside a portion of time in which to um, to worship that God according to his commands. Okay? But they don't know when or how much time and so on. Nonetheless, they have, they, they have that knowledge. All men have that knowledge naturally. But in addition to that, they all have a natural sense of regard for parents uh, that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that stealing is wrong, that, uh, that, that um, lying is wrong. All men have that innate sense. They also know that there's something wrong with covetousness. 
right? When there's this inordinate desire uh, for things that really don't belong to you. So they, all men have that as a basis. And because of that, when there's regard for that in the legislation and enforcement uh, administration of a civil magistrate, it meets with an immediate recognition and all but the most rebellious are going to acquiesce in it with, without much fighting. So that it, it, it will immediately begin to unify people who before that were not united. Now there are some people whose consciences are so seared and so corrupted that they're going to be a continual problem. And it is necessary in that case that we deal with them, which is why uh, you know the Bible allows for the execution of murderers, and, and uh, you know that thieves have to be, they have to be uh, forced to repay what they've stolen, and things like that. <clears throat> right? It's an imperative that justice be done, that others be holding their example, learn to fear to do evil, right? They, we don't want them to, to do evil. We want them to fear to do evil. Look at Deuteronomy 13, 9 to 11. Deuteronomy 13, verses 9 through 11. But thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. And thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. Yeah, so uh, we know the punishment of crimes committed is designed to terrify and so to prevent their repetition. Romans 13.3 Romans 13 verse 3 For rulers are not a terror to good works but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good and thou shalt have praise of the same. So, you know, we, uh, there's, there's a huge debate that's going on for gener at least a generation now with respect to um, the penal, penal laws and, and penal reform. Uh, and there are a lot of people who think that uh, penalties, things like the death penalty, don't really deter murder, for example. Uh, and, and to that... <clears throat> Uh, my, my first answer to that is, again, the first order of business in any kind of penal execution of law, whatever it is, right up, up unto and including capital punishment. The first concern is that justice be done, right? That there be an establishing of justice. And it is just and right that someone who, who uh, takes someone else's life high-handedly, uh, with malice of forethought and all of that, that such a person uh, should face capital punishment. Right? There are other crimes the Bible uh, also includes as capital crimes. <clears throat> it's a matter of justice. The second thing is, to keep in mind, when the Bible talks about these things being done to terrify, but to remember, um, 
at the time that Moses is right, or during the time of Christ, when these punishments were carried out, they were carried out publicly. Now we don't execute people publicly anymore. If you want there, if you want the execution to serve to terrify someone else, you know, it should be done publicly, where people can see them you know, writhing on the gibbet as they're as they're, you know, having the life uh, snuffed out of them, right? Or or uh, be witness to these these malefactors in their last moments when they're screaming and begging for mercy that they denied to their victims and they're being led to execution. Right? People should see the terror on their faces and, and see the terrors that they face. And they should see the horror of it. They should be able to see it. We shouldn't hide this and sanitize the death penalty. That's been, a, a, I think, a huge mistake um, in, in um, carrying out the death penalty. Public execution is necessary if you want it to be more than just a matter of justice. If you want there to be a deterrence, you know, go back to public hangings and, and do it in the communities where the crimes are committed, and uh, it will have an effect. When people who say it doesn't have an effect, it certainly did in Western societies when it was done in public. We didn't have uh, nearly the number of, of capital murders going on. You, know, you want to stop the shootings in Chicago, what we need to do is capture some of the people that are doing these shootings in Chicago and hang them on the street corner you know, in Chicago so that other people can see this is what's going to happen to you when we catch you. We're going to do this to you too. It will stop. What they're doing is they're terrorizing a society. Uh, the Bible, on the other hand, advocates terrorizing the terrorists, terrorizing the people that are wicked and and refuse to bend to the law. Okay, so punishment is designed to terrify. But now we've created this dialogue in our community where innocent people, people who are not committing these crimes, are terrified of executing you know, malicious murderers. We have people that there, there's absolutely no doubt that they've committed atrocious, horrific crimes against other people. And we still have people who don't see the point in executing, or they argue that um, it'll be cheaper to keep them in jail for life. Right. That's because we have a bunch of people who don't understand the purpose of ju uh, of justice being administered. Uh, there's another saying: the justice delayed is justice denied. And when that's going on, again, you don't have the establishment needed for there to be peace in a society. And so. What, what they've done is they've created a society in which there's unrest on both the, the law-abiding side of the civil society as well as unrest on the non-law-abiding side of civil society, and it's becoming deeper. And that's because we've lost sight of what 
it means to administer justice without respect to persons. <clears throat> and, and frankly, what that means is if people of, of um, one particular group commit more of this or that crime, they need to be punished regardless of the group to which they belong. There shouldn't be an exemption. Right? The law is the law. And that's establishing justice. If that, were, if that were to be done, people would begin to have more respect for the law. Right now, uh, respect for, for the law is eroding because it's been made to serve personal interest rather than principal interest. And the only way you're going to reestablish it is by reestablishing a, a rooting in natural principles of morality. Right. When those who are exalted to places of trust and power, uh, instead of putting the laws in execution against vice and injustice and punishing the wicked according to their merits, patronize and protect them, give them countenance and support their reputation by their own example, then wickedness proliferates and the wicked swarm in all places and go up and down, seeking to deceive, debauch, and destroy others. Look at Psalm 12.8. Psalm 12, verse 8. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. And we know that they're neither afraid nor ashamed to discover themselves. They declare their sin as Sodom, and there's none to check or control them. Isaiah 3, 9. Isaiah 3, verse 9. They show their countenance to the witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide, they hide not. Woe to their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. <clears throat> you know, what they've done, when, when the civil magistrate, who is the head of the body politic, when the civil magistrate refuses to administer justice, they're denying peace to the society, safety to the society, and they're promoting discord. Right? But they're, they're also promoting every kind of moral depravity. And they show themselves to be entirely unconcerned with the very thing for which they're appointed. Right? They're appointed in order to take hold of and constrain men to do that which is right and just. Not to allow the wicked to run, you know, hither and yon with, without and, and do whatever they want and terrorize people who are living within the the rules of civil society. So when we refuse to do that, when they when magistrates refuse to do that, uh, so far from being. Uh, you know, legislating, and people say all the time, oh, you can't legislate morality. Sure you can. They do it all the time, right? Every time they pass a law, they've legislated morality. They made something right or wrong, and they're going to punish it to make sure you know it. It's all they're doing. They're legislating morality. That's what the law does. It legislates morality. 
right? Which is why you have to begin with that moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. Because every other take on morality is going to be a, a take that has been shaped by personalities and the corruption, uh, the natural corruption of men's hearts. And you won't have the establishing of justice. Right? When they when they refuse to establish the the natural moral law, what they are establishing is immorality to the degree and in every case where they refuse to to um, enforce that moral law. And and that <clears throat> that goes for when they refuse to enforce proper penalties, right? I mean, when you say, well, we outlawed murder, but we're not going to execute murderers, you've legislated for murder. All right, the last question, question five. Should we thus endeavor according to our places and interests? The answer is yes. Deuteronomy 29, 9 through 11. Deuteronomy 29, verses 9 through 11. Keep therefore the words of this covenant and do them, that ye may prosper in all that ye do. Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders and your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water. When Moses is giving a, a list of all the people who are taken in, he doesn't single out, for example, only the uh, the elders, uh, the civil elders, the magistrates, or or the leaders in the church, but he really sets forth everybody because, and this is something in in um, Article Five, the fifth article here that is very apparent. It's the responsibility of everyone in a society to keep covenant, right? To endeavor to see that principles are put into effect. This is why we have to deal with criminals, because criminals, uh, people who publicly offend against these things, are undermining as much as in them lies, they're undermining the possibility of a society keeping these observances, right? No, uh, following after justice in the civil realm, uh, following after the principles of true religion in the church, and so on. Right? They're, they're trying to undermine it. And so while we're not kicking in people's doors and we shouldn't be kicking in people's doors to see if they have an idol inside, uh, you know, the fact is if you're an idolater, uh, unless you are wa walking circumspectly, publicly, you're probably going to slip up, right? That's not my fault. That's your problem. It doesn't become a societal problem until it becomes a problem in public. Okay? So we're not looking to deal with that then. Then you start to move into that realm of what we call willful opposers. But when everyone takes the responsibility seriously, 
and everyone is endeavoring and pulling in the same direction, it actually becomes easier on everyone. So endeavoring according to our places and stations makes it easier wherever you are in pecking order in a particular civil society makes it easier for those above you, below you, or next to you to um, also lend themselves to seeing these same principles be put into effect. Right, it's incumbent that upon each person to endeavor the maintenance of the cause of God's truth in accordance both with his station or place and interest in the matters contemplated. 1 Peter 2.14 First Peter 2, verse 14, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Yeah, thus, ministers must give themselves over to seeing it's upheld as to matters ecclesiastical. So, for example, 1 Timothy 4, 16. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. The magistrate says to matters civil. So, for example, Titus 3 1. Titus 3, verse 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. And fathers as to matters familial. Uh, so, for example, Ephesians 6 4. Ephesians 6, verse 4. And your fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, when we, we say according to places and, and interests, uh, we're, we're talking not only about you as an individual, but I think we have to consider everyone also occupies a peculiar station and relation within the society. And some uh, some of these stations have greater impact upon the civil realm. So people who are in that category ought to be emphasizing and, and seeing, endeavoring to see this put into effect in the civil realm. People in the churches, uh, likewise, should be looking to see this put into effect within the churches. And then fathers in, in families, right? Again, it's, this is a case of every place in society uh, exerting a peculiar impact and having a peculiar effect on the society. Civil society is... Uh, is the point at which the familial lives of, of people, the ecclesiastical life of the nation, and the civil life of the nation all intersect. And, and, and they mutually either support or undermine. Which is why it's so important that when we talk about, as we began tonight talking about peace, we understand that peace is something intimately tied to the upholding of that natural moral law.
And in a nation favored with the gospel, the light of the gospel, the possibility of upholding that peace in its fullness is actually realized because what the nat- where the natural moral law stops, with, particularly with regard to that first table of the law, the special revelation of Scripture uh, rounds out that picture so that we know who is the true God and we can know the principles of true religion. Because the principles of true religion are those religious principles which shape a people to be better able in the civil realm to keep that moral law. We're better able to keep it when we are, in fact, instructed by the special revelation and when we, when we recognize our dependence on Christ in all of that. So, next time we will be looking at the sixth article. And um, we're, we've got a couple more weeks of the Solemn League and then we'll start looking at the idea of descending obligations and covenant renewal.